0: Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. I can remember very clearly uh, the day, the moment, the uh, experience when our adoption agency called us Uh, or called me one day. I was sitting in my office, and they called to let me know that we had been matched uh, with a young child, a a boy, in Ethiopia, and that um, it was was pretty good to go, you know, and uh, we had a few more steps to take. However, we were matched, and I felt a little bit Uneasy about it, right? I mean, Jackie had done most of the legwork. She had filled out all the paperwork. She had made all the calls. She had done the things that needed to happen there. And then they were calling me because we had been matched, and they were calling me so that I could be the one to surprise her and let her know uh, that we were expecting a child. Which is kind of weird. Uh, the dad doesn't normally inform the mom um, that we, we're going to have a we're going to have a baby boy, you know. And so that was pretty exciting. Uh, to me, and, and what they did was they sent me a picture of uh, whom we would name Amos. They sent me a little picture of him, uh, his little um, fuzzy looking onesie with the footy, you know, all that kind of stuff in this uh, little baby uh, bed there, and, and, um, and I was tasked, um, not only by the, the agent, but also just by, you know, common sense that I, I have to tell Jackie, and this has to be special, alright? So this has to be special. And so I'm a guy, and I have to let a girl know some special news. So I went to Hallmark, because that's, that's where you go. They have stuff there to help you, uh, you know, share good news, right? They've got cards and such. And so I go in there and I, and I bought a, a picture frame. We, we printed out the little photo of Amos there in my office just on a regular old printer. I didn't have time to, you know, get it printed. And so printed it out, framed it, and And um, I I could just remember, I don't so much remember the conversation I had with her. I do remember I filmed it, you know. I filmed her seeing the picture for the first time. But I don't remember a lot of the conversation. I just remember how much I felt inadequate to share this good news. I mean, it was just like, when I think about it, who else besides the dad should share this? But I just felt like, isn't there somebody better? Like, you know, Morgan Freeman or somebody that could share this news in a, in a more appropriate way, you know, than me. Especially as, the, as I said, it's not normal that the dad is going to share that we're, to the mom, we're going to have a child. And I have a picture. So this would be the equivalent of you, t- uh, you know, a dad telling the mom with a, with a sonogram oh, um, hey, we're expecting a child, right? So this is all very strange to me and uh, something for all of the reasons it just kind of stood with me or stayed with me throughout my experience. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah receives a call from God. Uh, it's, it's commonly titled Isaiah's Call. And in that call, Isaiah is immediately pushing back on God saying, I'm not the right one for this. I'm I'm not... In fact, he says that I am broken beyond repair. That's sort of the implication that he says. And God gives him a message that because he got that call, he could not help but act on. There's a number of reasons why I believe, and I'll share them with you this morning. This message is particularly applicable to you and to I right now, as Americans, all right? So I'm going to share that with you this morning, but before we do, let's pray together. God, thank you for your words. Thank you for this 2,800-year-old account of you speaking through a vision to the prophet Isaiah. God, I pray that we would hear those words, we would put ourselves in that place, that we would see the situation as it unfolds, but God, that what is seen that long time ago, what had been seen, what was heard, continues to echo, continues to have ramifications into our day. God, I pray that we leave here today not worrying and not fearful, but instead obedience. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Isaiah chapter 6, as I said, uh, is Isaiah's call. The context, if you weren't here with us last week, we began a series called Isaiah, and uh, we, we started... In chapter 1. That's what you do when you start things. And so we started there in chapter 1. And just to catch you up, if you didn't hear it, was uh, Isaiah confronting uh, for God, on behalf of God, confronting the people of Judah who were particularly religious. They were making all the sacrifices. They were following the the Sabbath or the Shabbat. They were um, eating the right things. They were doing all the right religious things. However, their hearts were far from God. All right. So they looked good on the outside, but on the inside was rottenness and fakeness. In chapter 1, God confronts the religious people of Judah. In chapter 6, in a manner of speaking, God confronts Isaiah. God confronts Isaiah. So let's look at that, and, and you'll see kind of what I mean. Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read 1 through 4. It'll be on the screen. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne and the hem of his robe filled the temple seraphim which means heavenly beings or their angels were standing above him they each had six wings with two they covered their faces and with two they covered their feet and with two they flew and one called out to the other holy 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 is the Lord of armies his glory fills the whole earth verse 4 And the foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. And to them, smoke, um, this was incense that was burning there in the temple. We'll talk a little bit more about that. In the confrontation of Isaiah, the vision that Isaiah records, it begins with these words. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, most scholars are going to use that terminology to date the text. To say, oh, okay, well, we know when King Uzziah lived. We know when he died. Therefore, Isaiah's call happened about this time frame. And they'll give you a year or two, and, and it depends on which scholar that you are talking about there. But within this time frame, that's what's going on there. And then they almost act like that's all it was. You know, like if you write a paper for school, and, and on, the, on the front page it has like your title and your name, and then, it, and then you put the date. Like, that's what they're kind of thinking here. And the year King Uzziah died is essentially the date for the text. But I'm going to argue, I think it's a lot more than that. In fact, I think think it's the whole context of chapter 6. When you read chapter 6, most of us focus in on holy, holy, holy and the holiness of God. But I really believe that all of chapter 6, 1 through 13, is really less about God's holiness, although that's an aspect, but more about His holiness majesty. His majesty. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah is the name of this king. And and here's what's interesting. If you read in 2 Chronicles 26, uh, it talks about Uzziah. Uzziah was a great king. It's one of the good kings. God says, this guy's good. This guy follows kind of everything I tell him to. There's a few things he doesn't do right, but mostly he follows everything I do. He has cattle on a million hills, right? I mean, like tons and tons of cattle. It says he's a, he's a man of the dirt. He, he loves agriculture. And so he had vineyards all over the hills, these big, beautiful vineyards, cattle and, and vineyards and strong fortified cities. It says that he built towers in rural places and and in urban places. These big towers that were not only for protection so you could see when the enemy was coming, but also as these monuments to what a great king Uzziah is. Uzziah, um, besides just the fact that he was a great king, you know that he reigned for 52 years. 52 years Uzziah sits on the throne of Judah. I just like the guy because his name's Uzziah. I think that uh, if you've got to have a king and you get to choose between somebody named, you know, like, I don't know, Josh and Uzziah, go with Uzziah. If you are, let's just picture this you are an enemy king and you're sitting there in your throne room there and, and some army is advancing on your kingdom and they're surrounding the walls there and a foot soldier comes in and you, as the king, say, Well, who is it? Who's attacking us? And they say, It's Uzziah. We're dead. It's over. A guy named Uzziah is going to kill you. That's just, that's the feel. I think it's, it's almost Mufasa level. And so if you want to be named King Uzziah, if you are, if you are a young couple here, maybe you're expecting your, your first child. If it's a boy, I'm making strong arguments towards Uzziah. Yes, don't say no. Yes, Uzziah is a strong argument. It's a good king. Uzziah. This is the king that dies. Isaiah says, in the year the king Uzziah died. Now, here's what I want to share with you. This would have been nation-shaking. Down to the soul of the nation, when they heard, the, can you imagine, as the news spreads across uh, Judah, the king is dead. It would have shook them to their core. Y'all remember back in January of this year, it was about seven and a half years ago, uh, January of this year when, when Kobe Bryant, uh, died in the helicopter crash. I knew friends of mine that when they heard the news, when they saw it online or something, they just thought to themselves, this, this can't, this is weird. Kobe Bryant's not, he doesn't, he doesn't die. It just, it felt weird. And maybe it's not Kobe, maybe um, somebody else, when they passed away to you, it just felt odd. It, it just felt, I don't, I don't know, like uh, uh, Elvis or something. Uh, it just felt like this isn't right. This isn't Right, there's this shaking that because of something that they had lived in the the presence of for so long, 52 years, if you were 70 at this time, this is pretty much the only king that you had ever known for all of your adult life. If you were younger than that, this is the only king you've ever known. And so there's this shaking to its core just from that phrase, in the year King Uzziah died. But not only that, not only a shaking of what has been the crumbling of the foundation of how you've lived your life, but also just a uneasiness about the future. Can you imagine the conversations that are like, how do we even get a new king? I mean, it's been 52 years. What's the the process here? Also, that guy was good at like everything. I mean, agriculture, what if the new king's not really good at agriculture? So you got the whole agricultural sector of like, we don't know, how's this going to go? Is taxes going to go up? Are are we supposed to change things? That guy was good at the economy and finances. The nation's never been stronger in its economy at that point. So they're thinking, well, what are we going to do? I mean, what about the economy? There were neighboring nations that were paying what's called tributes to Uzziah meaning that they were just paying him money yearly so he would not attack them, all right? They were afraid of King Uzziah. What if, what if national security is weaker under the new whomever king? What if that happens? You see, just in that phrase there, I believe that Isaiah and any of his contemporaries would have had this immense amount of uneasy fear Of unfamiliar territory in which everything we've known is in danger and everything we don't know is so unclear. That's why one of the reasons I feel like this text is particularly applicable to the United States right now. Because there's a number of reasons why there is this anxiety, this, this, um, It's just like this underlying drumbeat of fear or anxiety. And it it has two, I think, major situations going on. First, there's the pandemic in which we're not sure about um, the hospitality sector. We're not sure about the economy. We're not sure about education and how all that's going to go. And so everything that we did know, everything we were planning on doing, is upset. It's upside down. I'm not sure how this thing's going to go. Then you add into that the fact that in November we're going to have a presidential election in which either the current president will, will start his second term or a new president will start their term. And regardless of where you stand on either side of the political spectrum in the two-party system, you are looking at that with, with a level of angst with a level of anxiety. I don't know anybody on either side of that equation who's not fearful of the uncertain reality of whatever's going to happen come November, and particularly in January, February, when that term starts. So there's this level of anxiety, and what I want to say, and just point this out, is all those feelings are all the feelings, perspective, that Isaiah was carrying when he writes, when he pins these words, in the year that King Uzziah died. Then, like I said a minute ago, that's not just the dating of the paper. It's tied directly into the next phrase. I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. See, I think what Isaiah is doing here is not just telling you when he saw this vision. He's tying the theme together. In the midst of the long-lived the king's death, I saw God Almighty seated on a throne. He's tying the two words, king and throne, completely together. You're supposed to read all the rest of this keeping that concept in mind. What does he mean by God is on his throne? It means that There is this power, there's this strength being reminded or uh, causing Isaiah to remember the idea that no matter who dies, no matter who sits on the earthly throne, that God is still completely on his throne. And it evokes a couple of emotions, things that um, should be. If you believe, like Isaiah was confronted with, as Isaiah is confronted with this king on his throne, then there's a couple of things that are obvious. First off, is that worry is inappropriate. Worry is inappropriate. You can not know what's happening or how it's all going to work out, but if you think that there's a king on his throne, then worry doesn't really have a place. You don't need to know what's going to happen with Uzziah's throne so long as Jehovah still sits on his throne. Fear is unwarranted. Worry is inappropriate. Fear is unwarranted. You don't need to know the future. The king knows the future. You don't need to know how this is all going to work out. The king knows how all of this is going to work out. The king knows exactly how things are going to come to pass. Worry is inappropriate. Fear is unwarranted. And obedience is expected. Have you ever heard anybody say anything along these lines of, well, um, they could be in a a relational situation or financial situation. They could even be in, uh, uh, they're thinking about politics. And they'll dismiss it with a wave of the hand. It doesn't really matter. The king is still on his throne. They'll say that, you you know, that the king is on his throne. I'm not worried about it. Jesus is still on his throne. What we mean by that is, don't sweat the small stuff. Jesus is in charge, right? I think that's, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think you should not sweat the small stuff because the king is still in control. But and catch this, because this is very important. you may not say, you are not allowed to say. you cannot believe and truly think deep down in your heart, that the king is on his throne and not obey that king. You see what I'm saying there? We use it as a cop-out. Oh, the king is on his throne. He's going to take care of this. You know, uh, I ripped my favorite jeans, but don't worry about it. The king is on his throne, you know. We use it as this cop-out to dismiss minor fears, but I think what Isaiah is teaching here is there is a sovereign. There is a high and lifted up one whom causes me not to fear, but also expects of me. That's where all of this is driven towards. Worry is inappropriate, fear is unwarranted, and obedience is, in, is expected. In light of that, as Isaiah sees the king high and lifted up, then Isaiah is not only confronted by who God really is, but he's also confronted by who he is. That's what his response is in verse 5. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, or undone, coming apart at the seams. I am completely devastated, broken beyond repair because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, the lord of armies. Remember that. It's not because he's holy, it's because he's the king that I'm undone. I'm looking around here. Isaiah says, oh, he's perfect. He's sovereign. He's in charge, and I'm unclean. That's a that's not a word we say. Okay, like we'll say dirty, and then you need to take a shower, right? That's not his communication here. He's not telling, he's like, "Whoa, to me, I need to take a shower. He's saying that there's a deeper brokenness inside of him. There's an uncleanliness when it comes to his soul and and his spirit, that when he stands before a perfect and holy God, he's dirty. It's ironic to me, and it's always been ironic to me, that one of the dirtiest things things in your house is the vacuum. The thing that used to clean stuff is actually pretty gross. On Friday, uh, Jackie and I were kind of straightening up the house stuff, and, and I went to, to, to empty the bin um, from the front of the, the, the um, that thing, the vacuum. I took that off there, and I went over to the trash can. I stepped on that, and I held over there, pushed the button, you know, and the bottom falls out of it, and just nasty comes out of that thing. I don't know if you've done this lately, um, but if you haven't, you probably need to do that. All right, so clean it out. And when it all came out, you know, like there's this dust, this is a cloud of, ah! you know, like you want to run or something and it, and it comes out of there. But furthermore, if you take that thing apart on the inside, um, you take that thing apart, there's, there's more stuff in there. You may not notice that, but you may not know. You take that thing apart, there's stuff all in it and you got to clean that out with your hands, Okay. It's gross. It's, it's gross. It's nasty on the inside. That's not at all what Isaiah is saying. But it's kind of what Isaiah is saying. Like on the outside, I'm broken. On the outside, I don't do what is right. But on the inside, it's straight nasty. On the inside, my soul is, is broken. It's so dirty. I am so unclean in front of a perfect sovereign we call God. But it's not only that, it's not I am a man of unclean lips, but it's also and live among people of unclean lips. Isaiah recognizes that in front of a holy and a sovereign God that I am completely unperfect and everybody around me is broken. Everybody around me is in need of help. That there's nothing we can do on our own. And given the context of the transition of leadership, the transition from one king to the unknown king at this point. Given the context of that transition, then I think it's important for us to kind of carry away from this something extremely American, something extremely relevant for us right now, is this. We are in our natural state so broken that the answer to our problems, the solution to our challenges, does not lie within us so much of our modern culture and our education system and just the general cultural philosophy that evades all of the the Western world but particularly the United States is this therapeutic, um, what we call therapeutic deism, or this therapeutic self-realization, that if you're just encouraged enough, and if you're, um, this is me patting somebody on the head, if you're um, uh, encouraged, if if you're told that you are good, and that you can look deep within yourself, you're going to find the solution. And Isaiah reminds us that that's just silliness, that deep down, if you really intraflate, if you really look on the inside, all you're going to find is, man, I'm really, really broken. I'm really messed up and everybody else is really, really messed up. See, one of the flaws with, the, with the, the beauty that is the United States is this concept of we the people. We the people is only as good as we the people are the people of God. But left to our own, we the people, no matter who we is, are going to bend or break. We're going to go towards the broken. That's that's true of every country and every group of people that has ever existed in all of history. That left to their own, people go towards the worst, not the better. Isaiah says, I'm ruined, I'm broken, And everybody around me is broken. What it screams to Isaiah's day and reminds us in our day is, I need help from the outside. I need help from outside of us. Let's imagine that my truck is stuck. I'm I'm somewhere and I'm, I'm stuck in the mud or off the side of the road or something like that. And you come to help me, right? And you pull up and you get stuck. We are both stuck. We need somebody else To help us. It's a basic concept that I know that when when I say stuff like that, most of you are sitting there going like, well, duh. I mean like, that all makes sense. But you would be amazed at how much just the way that we educate children now, the way that we speak of our issues, the way that we talk about the problems in our culture, is that if we could just like dilute it all down, and we could all get around and, and panel the thing to death, then we'll figure it out. But we, we won't figure it out. We messed it up. We need help from the outside, which is why it is glorious that verse 6 is there. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with the tongs. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Now, that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. The solution came from the outside. There's this fire in the temple that never goes out because that's where they, they gave the sacrifices. What's going on in this text is from the fire of the sacrifices, Isaiah is made clean, he's made whole, he's repaired, he's fixed, he's adopted, he's accepted. From the fire of the sacrifices. It's two ideas there. That Isaiah's redemption comes from the sacrifice of something else. In this case, it would have been uh, lambs and, and, and goats and rams, that sort of thing. That sacrifice is what paid for his atonement. That that fire is what um, purified him. That it burns all the way down to the base. That nothing is untouched. That the fire will, will pull, the, pull the impurities out. That this fire, this is all symbolic That the fire of sacrifice is what redeems Isaiah. Why? Because he needed a solution from the outside. He needed somebody else to pay the price. He needed something else to make it true and complete and all the way done. That's what that redemption happens. And this this is good news. This is good news for Isaiah. But it doesn't stop there because immediately in the life of Isaiah and in all Christians, immediately your redemption, Isaiah's redemption follows this idea. Who will I send? Who will go for us? Meaning that you're not just redeemed. Isaiah is not just made right for his own sake, but that he's made right for the sake of others. So that he can go, that he can be sent. This is a God who sins. Isaiah responds and says, here I am, send me. There's an implication here. I'll go But what do you want me to say? I'll go, but what do you want me to do when I go? God has good and bad news, but first the bad news. 9 through 12 says, And he, that's being God, replied, Go say to these people, Keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of the people dull deafen their ears and blind their eyes otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears understand with their minds turn back and be healed God in a poetic way says go and speak to them tell them what I'm about to tell you go and speak to them but tell them but I'm just letting you know that they're going to be so defiant that they're not going to listen verse 11 then I said until when Lord how long will they be defiant how long Will they stand in your judgment? God's response, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses, or without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land, until they're judged. That's what God tells Isaiah. Go and speak to them, but I want you to know this, that they are going to be completely defiant. Go and tell them my way, but I want you to know this, they won't listen. Go and show them what I expect, but I want you to know this. They're going to turn and not look until I judge them. Until I judge them. It's this bad news that we need to start in a place. And I, I know, This whole sermon is super not the way that our culture is right now. I'm literally standing up here saying, you're messed up and God will judge you for that. All right. So that's not something that you put on t-shirts or it's not going to make it on the back of a Starbucks cup. But that's the reality in the Bible. We're messed up and God will judge us for us. That's the bad news. That's the bad thing that starts here. We can look at these people and go, how in the world, how in the world can you live in a time where God like sets stuff on fire and, and parts, parts rivers, you know, and, and and he makes all these miracles. And, and then you have the prophet Isaiah standing in front of you saying, this is what God expects. And yet you don't listen. How is it that those people didn't listen to Isaiah? Isaiah's like, Isaiah, how are they not going to listen to him? Well, before we get too judgy on them, don't we not listen to Isaiah. Don't we spend like a lot of our times not listening to what the Bible says? The Bible says, like a million times, don't worry, God's in control. Don't worry about it, God's in control. Whatever it is, all of the uncertainties that are now flooding into your life because of the pandemic, all of the uncertainties that are coming because of the election, all of those things God has repeatedly said, don't worry about it. And yet we focus. God says, stop looking at that. And that's all we look at. God says, don't worry about that. And that is all we think about. That is all we we worry. How many times do we know? You all know. Nobody in here would argue with me on this. Didn't Jesus specifically say, love or make the choice to show compassionate kindness, sacrifice and give to your enemies, people who would harm you, Didn't God literally say, love your enemies? I mean, like a bunch of times, nobody in here would argue with that. If you did, you're wrong. You failed. All right? Nobody would argue with that. God says, love your enemies. And yet we walk around constantly justifying how we're going to be rude and undercutting and disrespectful and degrading. How we will share posts that make our enemies look foolish without even caring whether or not there's any truth to that at all. We're just throwing mud. Why? Well, they threw mud at us. You know why they did that? Because they're your enemy. That's how that works. And that's the people that God says to love. So before we get real judgy with Judah, just look in the mirror and realize, man, why do we, why are we so defiant against what God says? And how much more so do we stand in judgment? But look at this, and I love this. You should as well. All of God's messages include a level of hope. The last verse there, though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again. Like the terebinth or the oak, terebinth is a tree, that leaves a stump when felled, cut down. The holy seed is the stump. In other words, God says this Go, Isaiah. Tell them to repent. Tell them to turn towards me. But they're not going to listen. But keep this in mind. Even though I need to judge them, even though I will judge them and pour out my wrath on them, there will still be hope. There will be a tenth of the people. There will be this, this, this stump left. He refers to Judah like a, a cut down tree. There's this left stump. But from that tree, a sprout will come. I actually looked this up. You can Google this uh, trees that grow out of stumps. It's pretty incredible. It's like this huge part and then it goes in, it's all covered in bark, you know. It goes in and there's another tree that comes out of it. That's the imagery that Isaiah through God, or God through Isaiah is sharing here. That ultimately there would be a real hope. That if people will turn towards this hope, then they will be redeemed. That even though God will judge us because we are broken, He doesn't leave us there. That if you choose to trust in Jesus, then He will redeem you. That's what Isaiah 11, 1 through 4 says. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. Jesse being David's father. So a a shoot will grow from Israel, the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will be on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth and he will kill the wicked with the command from his lips. Here's the point. 2,800 years ago, God reveals himself to Isaiah and he says very clearly this. In the midst of your nation's turmoil, in the midst of your people's fear, God is still on his throne. And there are expectations if you are subject to that God. So I think what God is kind of telling Isaiah is, worry about that and don't worry about that. Worry about what I told you to do and not what you have no control over in the first place. Three applications real quickly. Stop ignoring what he says. Don't be that person who grows up in church, who goes to church services all the time, and you hear what he says about worry, loving your neighbor, being generous, sharing the gospel. Don't be the kind of person that hears all of that, and yet you're deaf. Who sees all of that, and yet you're blind. Who, what Isaiah calls, has a dull mind. Do what God says to do. Come out from among them. Often I'll hear people talk about, oh, like, uh, I can't be used by God. You don't know all the stuff I've done. You don't know all the things I'm known for around this town. If you knew those stuff, I can't, I can't go tell people to come to my church. They'll look at our church poorly. Isaiah says, I am broken and everybody I know is broken. So don't discount yourself just because you didn't hide your sins as well as other people hid their sins throughout most of your life. You can be used by God the same way that Isaiah is used by God. And finally, as far as application, go and say. This is really something that I am burdened by. I think because of the pandemic, we have lumped anything social into a uh, we'll do that later sort of category, right? Can't have no birthdays, can't have no uh, cookouts, can't do anything like that. And so we Push all of that over into there, and and for good reason. I'm not arguing with the reasoning. I'm just saying we do. We we push it all over there. We're going to wait on these things. And so if I was to stand up here right now and tell you, I want everybody to go out and uh, throw a little party. Um, A a barbecue at your house. Invite all your neighbors, all right? Uh, At your dorm, wherever you live, in your duplex, whatever it is, invite all your neighbors, come over, you're going to have a barbecue so that you can get to know them and you can share the gospel with them. If I told you to do that, most of you would be sitting there thinking right now, that's kind of like an act of terrorism right now. You're not allowed to have barbecues. You can't have people in your house. FBI will come out of somewhere and check your mask. That's what you feel like, right? I mean, it's just this general culture that is pervading. Somebody's going to take a picture and post it on Twitter, and then a bunch of people you don't know are going to be mad at you because you had 11 people in your house, you know? That's going to happen. You feel that way. I get that. And so what we did was we put all of the social over here, and we said, we're going to do that later. But there is no mandate that can stop you from sharing the gospel. There's no mandate that would cause you to stop and go and tell other people. So I don't care if you only do it one-on-one with a mask on sitting six feet apart. We are still told by the God who is still on his throne to go and to say. So figure out a way. Figure it out. Do it digitally. Do it through Facebook. Do it through Zoom. Do it through a mask. But go and say. Do what God told us to do. This last week, our country remembered 9/11, 9/11. And they should. We should remember 9-11. It was a terrible um, experience. In it, we remember all sorts of things, like how we should be thankful for our country. Also, the immense sacrifice that first responders and law enforcement make on behalf of the communities. We remember those things. They are true. They are valid concepts. And... 9-11 is one of those situations that for like my generation uh, and anybody that was alive at the point, but for my generation, it's one of those where were you moments. Like anybody who experienced it, can, you can ask them, where were you when you heard about this? Where were you when you saw it? And everybody knows. They know exactly where they were. For previous generations, it's similar to when Kennedy was assassinated or um, Pearl Harbor. It's one of those things where you remember. There are situations where not only you remember, but everyone remembers exactly where you were if you were alive during that point. And since that, because of that, I've read a bunch on it. I've listened to um, videos and watched things. I've seen a lot about 9-11. But... Yesterday, one of our deacons, Wayne, who's sitting over there, Wayne sends me this video of something I had never heard about, that it was involved in 9-11. He sends me this video, and the video is called Boat Lift, and it's narrated by Tom Hanks. Who doesn't love Tom Hanks, right? So if his voice is on something, I want to watch it, right? So I'm watching this little video about what is called the boat lift. What happened was, when the towers were hit a large portion of Manhattan started to run, try to escape um, the area. They were under the assumption at that point that New York was being bombed, right? Um, Which is, that's what it kind of felt like at the time. They were under attack. That's what it kind of felt like. And if you've ever watched any movie, New York is always the first one to get attacked. And so they are taken off. They're running. And in the video, especially when the towers fell, in the video, Tom Hanks says... He says, that's when the people of Manhattan ran and learned, in fact, that Manhattan is an island. And so as they ran to the the south side of Manhattan, as they ran there, they were confronted with what you're confronted with in an island, water. There was no escape. As soon as we were attacked, the um, uh, tunnels and the bridges were all shut down. It was all shut down. So here you have... Thousands and thousands of people running to try to get away from something with nowhere to go. For the first time in a long time, they saw boats as transportation. Some of them tried to get on ferries. Some of them even jumped into the river and tried to swim it, um, which is nearly impossible to do. So the Coast Guard, who's standing by, or, or, or was out there in the harbor there watching this, the Coast Guard decides to put out a call. Here's the words. He says, all available boats. This is the United States Coast Guard. Anyone wanting to help with the evacuation of lower Manhattan, report to Governor's Island. They said within 15 to 20 minutes, hundreds and hundreds of boats come rushing towards Governor's Island, towards southern um, point of Manhattan. They said that tugboats, fishing boats, party boats, I sound like Forrest Gump, right? Shrimp, dry shrimp, Um, tugboats, party boats, personal boats, um, uh, ferries, every imaginable watercraft, if it could carry people, if it could go, went and evacuated people off of that island. It became the largest single occurrence of a water evacuation in the history of history. They said within less than nine hours, 500,000 people were evacuated off of the southern end of Manhattan with no training, with no organization other than get them and go. The video ends with one of the boat's captains saying these words, I never want to say the words I should have. I should have gone. Just needed to go and do it. In a similar way, the call that goes to Isaiah 2,800 years ago is the same call that goes to you. You are redeemed and bought with a price. Jesus made the sacrifice to redeem you. They need help. They need hope. So go and say. Rush towards those who need you and go and say. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.